The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, July 27th, the return of the Dan edition. I'm Carvel Wallace, a freelance writer out in Oakland, and I'm the father of Georgia, who is 11, and Ezra, who is 14. Hi, I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer and editor for Slate, currently living in Samara, Costa Rica. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 12, and Harper, who is about to turn 10. And I'm Nina Aaron. I'm a writer and editor in Oakland, California, and I am the mom of Emmett, who's eight, and Iona, who is five and a half. Awesome. It's good to have you on the show, Nina. This is Nina's first time ever on a podcast, so... I'm thrilled to be here. She's excited. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Ava Siegler about her new book, How Do I Explain This to My Kids? A collection of essays about parenting in the age of Trump, featuring our own Dan Coyce. We're also going to do recommendations and a listener question, but first, triumphs and fails. Nina, what do you have for us? Um, okay, mine is a little weird. Um I was at a, it's a fail. <laughs> Let me say that right off the bat. I was um, at a dinner at friend's house this week, and we left my son there to have a sleepover with their kid. I was driving home with my five-year-old daughter, and it was one of those, like, beautiful Bay Area summer evenings. The sky was pink. We were, like, cruising in our station wagon. Everything was lovely. And she said, who made the world in that way that they do at that age where it's, like, you know, one of those wonderful that whole sense of wonderment that's, like, the best part of being a parent. She said, it's so, the world is so beautiful, and who made the world? And I was like, well, you know, there's so many people in the world, and people have different answers to that question. A lot of people believe that the world was made by God, but I don't believe that, but I agree that the world is absolutely marvelous and gorgeous, and and nobody really knows the answer to that question. And then she was quiet for a second. I said, do you believe in God? And she said, I want to, but I can't because nobody in my family does. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And I I felt so, I, I don't know, I felt a lot of things. And I said, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't believe in God. Lots of people believe in God, even though other people in their family don't and you know you make your own decisions about these things but she and she just kept reiterating like i i would and i kind of want to but i i can't because we don't and it made me feel really bad i haven't stopped thinking about it i've thought about it a lot since then and you know half of the my half of the family is jewish but very culturally jewish and we don't really believe in god and the other half was Christian at some point, and now nobody really believes in God. So yeah, are we? You know, we're into like bagels and AA. <laughs> so I didn't. I mean, but I felt really sad thinking I was like had somehow messaged like I'm foreclosing the possibility of like my daughter having a like nourishing spiritual life because I, without even knowing it, I have sort of like made it not seem cool or possible. Oh, wow. to, so that's a very weird one, but like I, it's I'm still turning it over in my mind and feeling shitty and guilty about it. Wow, I mean, yeah, that raises like this interesting kind of reverse question. Usually, this story about differing spiritual experiences in a family is like my parents were ultra religious and I came of age exactly. and said fuck all that shit, you know, and that's how I found my independence. But what I hear you and actually a lot of people talk about now is almost the opposite feeling. It's like. 
I have the parent being like, I have my own questions, concerns about it, but I also don't want to, like you said, foreclosing the possibility of that for the kids. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I don't know what there is to do besides just say, of course, you can believe anything you want and that make myself available to talk about all of those things and not say denigrating things about organized religion, which I sometimes find very challenging. <laughs> it's hard, too, because that really the spirit of what she said is comes out of a kind of family solidarity that is like like sort of what you want out of your kids like you want your kids to feel like oh we're all part of one team we all are 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 pushing for the same things but it's hard to also send the message that that doesn't mean we can't believe different things about important issues and we will still respect and love you even if you do believe those things right right yeah yeah that is uh that's something i mean that is something yeah, that's something. Way to stifle your kid's religious freedom. All right, moving on. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, I have a I have a triumph, I think, which is that um, this is a very weird summer for us as a family because our kids are far flung. Um, listeners of the show know that last week I talked about what it was like to put my son on a plane and send him hurtling off 3,000 miles away, um, which he still is on the East Coast. And then yesterday... My daughter was in Santa Cruz with her friends and their mom texted me in the middle of the day just to be like, all of our children are gone. What, what is this? You know? And so this summer has had this bizarre sort of, uh, um, uh, rite of passage feeling to it where the kids are just, they're going off into the world in a way that they didn't used to be able to. And that's, there's a lot of feelings associated with that. But one of the ones is that the other day when my daughter was around, she really wanted her and her friends cooked up this whole plan to go to Six Flags Great America one day. And they organized this without the inclusion of any adults. They just, everyone, some kids had like these passes from some school reading club or whatever. And they kind of like pulled all their resources. And then there was only one kid that didn't have a ticket. And then they asked me if I could find like a discount ticket online. And so I did that. And we put the whole thing together and we ended up with this crew of four girls, aged 11, who all decided they were going to go to Great America on this particular day. And then they came back to me and said, can you be the transport for this? That's all we need is we need you to put everyone in the van, transport them to this thing, and then pick us up. And I said, great, I will. And uh, so I picked them up early in the morning. Of course, I told them I'd pick them up at 9, 8.45. My daughter's like, where are you? What's going on? Are you on your way? You know, she's <laughs> texting me because she was sleeping over at her friend's house. And uh, so I went and got all the girls, and then we went and picked up another one who they hadn't seen each other for since school ended. And there were hugs, and they got in the car, and the kids were singing and laughing and listening to music. And then I we went to Great America, and they they – I dropped them off, and then I realized I had not given my daughter enough money. Like, I meant to give her a certain amount of cash, but I forgot to go to the bank. And through some weird, like, shell game, I ended up giving her, like, $20 less than I wanted to give her because I know how expensive food is, and they were going to be there until 5. So after she goes in the club, I mean, into the, the club, after she goes into in the club. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Duck Club. Yeah, foreshadowing. So after she goes goes all the way through the line and into Great America— and the line wasn't long because we got there right at the opening. I realized, oh, I didn't have this money. So I texted her like, oh, my God, I don't think I gave you enough money. Are you going to have enough money to buy funnel cake and hot dogs and all whatever bullshit you're going to buy? And she was like, no, it's going to be fine, Dad. And I was like, no, I, I can go to the bank and come back. And she's like, Dad, it's going to be fine. So then I called her and I was like, are you sure? And I realized that I was panicking, you know, and she was being so polite. I could tell she was humoring me. 
And she's, but she really wanted to run off. And I was like the last thing holding her. And she said, dad, it's fine. Like, we'll, we'll figure it out. Like, we're going to be fine. Like, okay, I got to go, dad. I got to go. And just hearing her say, I got to go, dad. I got to go. And knowing that really meant, like, I need you to leave me alone so I can go off into, you know, to do this thing without you. It just really hit me. And I said, okay, okay, sure. Okay, well, let me know if you need anything. Okay, dad, bye. <laughs> and hung up the phone. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and, uh. And then, you know, I didn't, and then I didn't see them again until the appointed pickup time, which was 5.30. And I got there at about five and I waited outside and watched all these families come out. And I just love watching all these families, especially in California, which all these different kinds of people and the girls came out. They had had a great time. They spent the whole car ride home telling me stories about this roller coaster and that one. And this kid was scared and this kid dropped a cotton candy and this one, you know, they just were bubbling. And I just felt so pleased as a parent that my kids are at an age where they can go off and enjoy fun that way and that I can play my little part, which is just to like get them there and get them home and uh, let them do the rest. So to me, that felt like a triumph. Major triumph. That's, I feel like I might cry after that story. (laughs) Well, I, that I have to say for parents of younger, even slightly younger kids like me, the idea that I mean, it is bittersweet, but the idea that at some point your role becomes more like facilitator yeah. is it's really awesome. That means you like you win parenting. Yeah. You got them to that point. They know how to have fun. They're fine without you. They're like, leave me alone. Cool. Yeah. Give me 20 bucks. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> yeah, Bye-bye. That's basically what it was. <laughs> I love how that. hungry was your daughter? You know what? They actually, they figured out a way to make it work. They, uh, you know, they're all so, all those those four girls in particular are so organized and good at like, they pulled all their resources. They figured out how much money they could spend at each point. They made a plan for when they were going to get food. I mean, they're really organized. So they, they made it work. They absolutely stole food from a burger stand is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> they 100%, like yeah, three yeah. of them were distractions. And then your daughter snuck into the kitchen and stole four burgers. <laughs> Yeah, they ran to the car with like a bag with dollar signs I on said, it. And said, go, go, go. like, go, go, go. And I was like, well, they must have had a great time. <laughs> Dan, what do you got for us? Uh, all right. So um, I have a fail. It is, uh, Allison, my former co-host, if she's listening, will be so happy to know this is not a fail that I turn around into a triumph. It's just a sad, depressing fail. Uh, so... This past Christmas, the present that we gave our kids, their present for Christmas, was tickets to the Harry Potter play in London. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big, exciting thing that we gave them. They were very excited. The trip was not till this past June, however, because that was when we uh, were in Europe um, for a couple of months for this book that I'm writing. And so we went from Amsterdam to London for five days. And the kids really love the play, obviously. Uh, they really love some other things about London. But it was also, in a lot of ways, a really hard and unfun trip um, mm. uh, for the kids and for the parents. Um the kids were feeling really grumpy a lot of the time and refused to enjoy a lot of the things that we really hoped that they would love. We stayed in a, a, a super budget Airbnb because we had spent every dollar we had in the world on tickets to the Harry Potter play. Um, <laughs> and it had no air conditioning. It was like a million degrees outside. So it was way too hot to be outside. It was way too hot to be inside. And we were all sort of at each other's throats by like the second day of this trip. So anyways, whatever, this is a dumb gripe that our wonderful trip to London was not as great as I hoped it would be. But I, my fail is that I made it a million times worse on the last day of the trip. 
because it was the day before Father's Day. Now, the kids mm. had sort of decided that we would celebrate Father's Day on Saturday uh, because Sunday we would actually be traveling back home. Um, so my fail is that I took Father's Day way too seriously and personally. And as a result, I basically ruined it for everyone. I have like no idea why I behaved the way that I did. I think that this whole long year long trip that we're on has made me think a lot too much about myself and my parenting. Uh, and the trip to London had been kind of hard and upsetting. And I was like feeling annoyed at my kids for what I viewed as their, their lack of appreciation in the grand sense. Um, and I transfer that into feeling underappreciated myself. And anyways, the point is, I like seethed my way through Father's Day. So you guys know how when it's your kid's birthday and you ask them to like pick up their underwear off the floor or something, they go, but it's my birthday. Why do I have to do that? <laughs> so yes. that was that was basically me all day. Like I, I, I was like, I was old enough not to say it out loud, but in my head, every time anything happened that wasn't completely ideal or perfect, I would just think, but it's my Father's Day. Mm. And it was so hot. And the kids kept complaining about what we were doing. And that night after we got home from like a very tense dinner, I just completely blew up at Lyra mm. for something. I don't even remember what it was. Something that certainly was not commensurate with my response to her, which was like loud. And it wasn't like they were being bad or asking me to like do outlandish out of the ordinary stuff. They were just doing their best on this hard trip, but they were grumpy and tired and hot too. And instead of just like rolling with it as I ought to have, I got completely wrapped up in myself and I took it all out on them. So like after they went to bed angrily, I went to bed at like nine and I literally cried myself to sleep for the first time since I probably, I was like 12 years old mm -hmm. and it was like terrible. So that, that is my fail. I had a self-obsessed day long temper tantrum and mm -hmm. ruined father's day for my whole entire family. So it's been, you know, better since then, but now I'm trying every time since then that my kids have acted immaturely in some way or in a, in a way I view as immaturely. I've tried to remind myself that, uh, that even now at the age of 42, I'm completely capable of acting like a giant fucking baby. So I should lay mm -hmm. off them a little. Yeah. 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 I mean, I can relate to that. I think every parent can relate to that on some level. And I think that parents' days are a trap, actually. <laughs> I think that yes. over the years, we've ex definitely experienced this with Mother's Day, with birthdays, with Father's Day to a certain extent. There, uh, It's like – it. I know that – and I would love – at some point, I'm going to have uh, my ex-wife, my kid's mom, here to talk about this because she has this whole theory about how these particular days that are supposed to be focused on the pleasure and joy of the mother are like the worst of all the days because they just highlight like how tremendously difficult everything else is. And we found that the kids can never get it right. Like they – physically are incapable of getting it right. Every year on my birthday or Father's Day, they always ask, what do you want? And I always go, here's what I want. I want you guys to not fight at all today or just do what I ask the first time I ask you. Like, that's all I want. Not a tie. Not to the make impossible gift. I don't need. Yeah. I literally just when I say take out the trash, I want you to take it out without being like, oh, you know, like, that's what I want. And they can't do it. And they just <laughs> right. physically cannot. They're, and by the they're every cognitively day, I, incapable of doing that. Yeah. So to ask them to do it is been, it's just setting yourself up for disappointment. It's setting yourself up for disappointment. So by mid afternoon on the day of whatever it is, usually the 
so-called celebrant is in the worst mood ever and is ready to murder the entire family. And after going through this now a couple of years, I think their mother and I have finally, like, peeped the game. Like, oh, I get it. This is just a a recipe for disappointment and failure. So let's let the expectations be low. And, I mean, you couldn't do this there, but one of the things that we've done is actually the celebrant usually gets the day mostly off. That's <laughs> so what we do. It's like, yeah. go. Yeah. So instead of being like, Mother's Day means they're going to brunch, and then we're going to go to the beach, and then we're going to no. like take mom to the thing, Never. and then we're going to – because all the kids are going to do is complain and be little shits the whole day. And then – which is normal. Like, they normally are. But the fact that it's supposed to be this day to celebrate the parent makes it – magnifies everything. So what we've learned is that – it just ends up being bad. So, like, the parent just gets to go and do whatever they want. I think the, the kids should, like, dip in, yeah. give you cards, get some kisses, like, do that thing, and then be banished for yeah. the rest of the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say not to – I mean, you were saying this is, like, an unequivocal fail, but I would disagree and say, like, a shitty parent wouldn't even know that they'd been an asshole and wouldn't care to be, mm. like – it's very self-aware for you to be like, wow, I acted like a child. Mm. I mm. We all see – I mean – Mothers are seething, I would say, like 98% of the time. Pretty high percentage seething situation. <laughs> yeah. <in the> rooms. <laughs> so we're mostly seething. Yeah. But I do think that, um, yeah, I think there's like really some value in, in being able to like see what you did there. Yeah. So what you're saying is that this fail was actually a triumph? <laughs> yeah, I'm saying you Take awesome. that, Benedict. Take exactly. that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wait till you see what I do tonight. <laughs> You're like, kids, turns out I'm not sorry about that day. I realized it was a win for everyone. (laughs) Before we talk to Ava, let's do a little business. First, I want to tell you about another Slate show. It's the Slate Political Gab Fest with David Plotz, Emily Bazelon, and John Dickerson. If you listen to and like our show, there's a good chance you'll like the Political Gab Fest. They take three political topics from the week and dissect and discuss. Last week, they discussed the continuing adventures of healthcare in the Senate, Steve Bannon, and the state of sexual assault on campus, which, of course, all led to some pretty heated arguments. So I recommend you check out the Political Gab Fest at slate.com slash gabfest or wherever it is that you get your podcast. And we also want to hear from you. So if you want to ask us a question on air, then leave us a voicemail at 424-255-7833. It's the best way to have us respond to your question. And we really do love hearing from you. And finally, today on Slate Plus, Dan will be talking about his experiences as a parent in Holland. And if you want to hear that segment, now is the best time to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash app to download the new Slate app and try Slate Plus free for 90 days. You're going to get bonus segments from your favorite Slate shows and ad-free podcasts. Okay, moving on. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Ava Siegler about her new book, How Do I Explain This to My Kids?, Parenting in the Age of Trump. Uh, Dr. Siegler, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Glad to have you. So tell us a little bit about what, uh, how the idea for this book came about and what kinds of things you were looking for as you looked over potential submissions for this, for this project. Well, originally, uh, I had written a, a previous book called What Should I Tell the Kids? A Parent's Guide to Real Problems in the Real World. And when Trump was elected, I realized that he was a bigger problem than anything I had dealt with in the previous book. Um, And then when I was approached by Diane Wachtel, editor-in-chief of New Press, 
uh, she asked me if I'd be interested in, you know, writing uh, a book that addressed these issues for parents. You know, my sense of it was that we were sort of in the midst of a national disaster, and parents were our first responders. So I was mm. very interested. What we looked for in terms of selecting the essays was, first of all, um, we hoped that most of them were written by parents. In other words, they were first-person accounts, uh, not, uh, you know, reportage pieces, but really, you know, parents who are writing about their own problems, about their own kids, about uh, what situations they felt they were going to face. Uh, many of the essays were very anguished. Some of them were quite depressed. Some of them were hopeless. Some of them were more optimistic. And we also looked to get a uh, a continuum of parents who are being targeted by Trump. So we looked for Muslim parents, African-American parents, uh, gay, lesbian, you know, uh, queer, trans parents. We looked for uh, parents who were um, in interracial uh, uh marriages. Uh, and we looked for parents who, uh, many of them themselves were journalists, and so that they could express their thoughts in very articulate ways. And I'm happy to say we were delighted to get those kinds of essays. Yeah, it seems that way. You know, one one of the things that I always think about, what you know, that I thought about a lot with my own two kids, you know, who were very much aware of what was happening, they were 14 and 11 at the time of the election, is that there's this question of um, most times when kids have fear, our instinctive response is it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Like some variation on that. Like it's going to know that there isn't really a monster under the bed. That's, you know, we're not going to be, we're, you know, people aren't going to get us. And yet the thing that felt different to me about the Trump election is that I couldn't conclusively say that on November 9th, 2016. And I, we know as parents that kids look to us to say that. And there's this, uh, there's this extra pressure that you have as a parent that if I show fear, then how? what am I kind of communicating to my kids how, how difficult it's going to be for them? And I wondered just kind of in reading all these essays and thinking about this topic, what, you've, what you observed about how parents deal with their own fear via their kids. Well, I think most of the parents in the essays are really struggling to do a good job. I mean, one of the things that I'm saying to parents is that your response has to be um, directed by your child's age developmentally. With, with young children, children from, let's say, three to nine or ten years old, what I call realistic reassurance is still our best bet. So you might say something like, I'm very upset because Trump became president. He's not the person I wanted to be president. I don't think he's going to be a good president. So, of course, I'm worried. But no matter what, you know, our lives are going to be the same. You're going to live in the same place. You're going to go to the same school. And, you know, mom or dad or whoever is the uh, guardian of the child reassures the child, you know, about their presence in the child's life. Now, older children... Uh, school-age children who go up from, let's say, 9 or 10 up until adolescence, 
the best way to help them is to expand their knowledge of the situation so that rather than offering reassurance, you don't dismiss or deny any child's feeling. If a child says, I'm scared of Trump, you don't say, oh, honey, don't be scared. There's nothing to be scared of. You say, I understand. What is it that you're afraid of? So that the child has an opportunity to express what the truth of their feelings are. And then I think you expand knowledge with older kids. You talk about the electoral college. You talk about checks and balances. You talk about all the efforts made by people uh, who are fighting against Trump, who are resisting and protesting and persisting. Uh, and with teenagers, you know, the best thing for them is to become socially active, to engage teenagers in actually participating you know, in their own democracy. And of course, any teenager who's 14 years old now is going to vote in the next election. So you need to impress upon your teens that they can change our world. Well, I also have a question. I want to say first, I'm so glad that a book like this exists. Um, and I, I wonder whether you think, you know, I mean, we talk about sort of the problem of Trump. I wonder if you see any value for parents and children in having to sort of negotiate this dark and kind of complex, very nuanced terrain together. For me, as a parent of younger children, eight and five, I feel like it has kind of exploded the world I've been telling them about since they were little, reading board books about, like, here's the postman and people take care of each other and our community is full of love. And and this has, like, really <laughs> thrown a wrench in that whole vision. And but I also feel like there might be some value in not perpetuating a kind of exceptionalism about our country. And there's some value in like having to get into the nitty gritty. I wonder if you see value in those conversations with smaller kids. Mm -hmm. I think with all children, Nina, one of the things that I have been extremely impressed by is the unintended consequence of American people becoming extremely, and children, extremely interested in politics. I don't think I can ever remember in my life um, having our population uh, be as profoundly affected by a presidency. So I do think that there are... Um, there are unintended consequences which developmentally are important for our kids. Understanding what you do when you don't agree with somebody. Understanding that there is darkness in the world, but we can fight it. Understanding that truth does matter and that lies are unacceptable. Um, understanding that bullying is extremely uh, difficult to deal with, particularly when the person who's the head of our country is the biggest bully. So I think there's a lot of, I don't want to say advantage because I think we're paying a high price for something. But as with all dark times, there are lessons to be learned and teachable moments. Ava, this is Dan. I, I have an essay in the book, as you know. It's a piece that I wrote for Slate um, at like 4 a.m. on election night, so I am hesitant to look back at it now. Um, it definitely is a little bit glum, um, but I, you know, in writing that essay, I'm coming from 
you know, a real place of privilege in that it is very unlikely that the Trump administration is going to materially affect my family. We are, you know, we have money, we are white, we're citizens, we're, you know, and for God's sake, we have left the country. And in fact, we're traveling around the world. So we're not even in the country to like be annoyed by Trump. And so I'm really glad to hear that you were also, in addition to my essay, seeking out essays from people who who are at risk. And so I'm really curious what you heard from parents who don't, who really feel they must have to take some kind of defensive or protective measures in today's society, parents of immigrants or, or gay or lesbian parents or parents of color. I'm really curious what you heard from them about how you talk about those even tougher truths and the kinds of safety measures that parents might even have to take in, in a Trump-led America. Yes. Well, you know, Dan, you're right. I mean, for many of us, we are in a privileged position. I also live in New York City. <laughs> New York City is a very privileged place to, lead, to live right now. New York, California, uh, places where, you know, the governors, the mayors are, are resisting Trump. But in some of the essays, you're talking to recent immigrants, you're talking to parents who uh, are Muslim, whose kids are being taunted in school. You're talking to uh, parents whose kids go to Trump-leaning schools in Trump-leaning areas like Florida, where one mother in, in one of the essays says, this is the first time I've ever been afraid of free speech. I'm telling my children to keep their thoughts to themselves. And the children themselves are saying, don't worry, Mommy. You know, when the teacher says how Trump is the most wonderful thing to happen in our country, I just stay silent. I don't say anything. So I think for many parents, you know, there's an essay in the book where, um, by Robin Kelly, where he, he's an African-American uh, father, and he talks about the fact that this is the first time that white parents have been scared, but African-American parents have been scared for generations. They've always had to have the talk with their children, particularly with their boy children. They've always had to be afraid that the policeman is not their friend. They've always had to be a friend, afraid that their kids can't play in a certain way. They had to teach them how to talk to people in authority so that they don't get shot at or they don't get killed. So I think that many parents who write essays in this book are very frightened, but some of them are not frightened in a new way. They're just more frightened than they've ever been, but they've been frightened for decades. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it's like white people just gentrifying panic like we gentrify everything else. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it reminds me of the Vietnam War. I protested against the Vietnam War. It wasn't until white kids started being sent abroad in the draft that people protested against the Vietnam War. It was fine to let minorities fight in Vietnam. You know, so I think that um, this is an enormous mobilization of people all over whose experiences now are, are more empathic with people of color, you know, with people who, who, are, um, who, who are being sent back to Mexico, with people whose parents are being refused uh, admission at airports. Um, it's mobilized all of us, I think, in a very new way. That's, you know, that's, you bring up a question that I sort of generally have for people who, <clears throat> you know, it, 
who have been around for a number of phases of America's political consciousness or life, you know, every time that we're in always feels like the worst time ever. Right now, one of my jobs is editing a long feature series on the summer of 1967. There were 159 race riots during that time. And when I'm reading back the stuff and looking at archival footage and archival, I'm like, there were tanks in the street in Detroit. Like they actually had U.S. Army tanks firing on apartment buildings in Detroit. That must have felt like the end of the world. And yet, here we are. And so this time right now, we look at it and we say, no one's ever seen anything like this before. This is the worst thing that ever happened in U.S. history. What could this, what could be the meaning of this? I wonder if a person for you who has that length, slightly more lengthy perspective, how do you see this comparing to places that we've been in the past? Mm-hmm. Well, let's not forget that <clears throat> in Kent State, soldiers shot and killed students. I mean, we've had mm terrible times. We've lived through McCarthyism. We've lived mm. through tremendous rise in anti-Semitism. We've lived through... Uh, we, we've lived in eras before civil rights, when, when you know, African Americans were being lynched in the South. So, of course, this is not unique, but I do think there's one thing that's unique about this. I think that Trump presents us with a lethal combination, because he's someone who has some extremely destructive policies, and he has an extremely deeply flawed personality. And I think for parents, okay, the policies, we've seen them come and go, come and go, and we hope he's only going to be around for three and a half more years. We'll hopefully vote him out. Somebody else will come in. It's a big shock after the Obama years. But nevertheless, those policies may change. But for children who are being raised now in the Trump era, his personality is frightening. You're talking about somebody who's the, the highest office in the land. So you're talking about a role model who is a bully, a racist, a misogynist, you know, a liar, a compulsive liar, where the New York Times has to have a page saying the truth is important, uh, who has really uh, deliberately put people in his cabinet into places where they, there's no environmental protection agency anymore. It's the environmental destruction agency. You know, uh, it's the destruction of education agency. So, yeah, we've had very hard times, but I think this combination of Trump's flawed personality and the destructive policies is somewhat unique. I mean, maybe maybe you have another idea of a president previously who has brought this to the table, but we've had bad presidents. I mean, we've had lots of bad presidents who've done good things. We've had good presidents who've done bad things. But I truly believe that Trump, Trump's personality is unhinged. It was Andrew Jackson, but he didn't have a megaphone to yell in our ears every day. (laughs) Exactly. And remember, (laughs) young children in particular um, are very uh, affected by big men with loud voices, who repeat the same things over and over and over and over again in words that even a three-year-old can understand. Look at Trump's Mm -hmm. language. Compare it to Obama's language. Mm -hmm. You know, he has such a primitive way of speaking that children 
can listen and understand exactly what he's saying. Lock her up. That's a good point. Mm. Hmm. I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, so um, this is, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I wonder, you, the thing you said at the beginning about parents being the first responders in this kind of natural disaster, I'm, I'm still thinking about that. And I guess, you know, you sat and there's this belief that children are the future, not to make it sound cli- like a cliche, but having kids of my own and also having taught in classrooms, I have that experience where I go, oh, the world's terrible, the world's terrible. And then I look at, I sit and talk with kids and I go, eh, we're going to be fine. Because these kids are great. And I wonder if that's the takeaway or how you felt after reading all these manuscripts and putting this project together. Did you feel an increase in hope, a decrease in hope, or how did it affect how you went and how you felt going into this? Well, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, so so <laughs> um, I'm basically an optimist. I believe, mm. you know, I believe in learning. I believe in empathy. I believe in self-control. I believe that all these things are teachable. I believe that parents can raise children of good character. So I am basically optimistic about the future, but I think parents have to step it up during the Trump era. I think they have to, if their kids watch TV, they have to sit with their kids and correct Trump's lies. I think if you have young children, you need to protect them from Trump's constant rants and raves. I think if you have teenagers, you need to engage them more than ever in an understanding of our history, what democracy means, uh, civics, you know, all of the things that are very important, uh, you know, to keep our republic alive. Uh, I think that Trump can do a great deal of damage. Uh, he's already done a great deal of damage. You know, even if you just think about what's happening with clean water or clean air, or favoring Russia, or, you know, all of the things that are going on at once. But I do believe that our kids are the hope for the future. And I do believe that they will be able, if we raise them, uh, to understand what are the values we want to carry through into the next generation. I believe they will save the world and save us. Mm. Thank you so much. This has uh, been a great conversation with Dr. Ava Siegler about her new book, a, a compilation of essays called How Do I Explain This to My Kids? Parenting in the Age of Trump. Dr. Siegler, where can we get your book or find out more about it? Well, you can get it on Amazon, of course. <laughs> uh, and it's in all the bookstores. It came out on July 11th. And um, I hope that, you know, people are interested in this topic and that they pick it up. And um, I think you'll enjoy reading what the parents have to say. Dan Coyce has a very interesting article, essay in it, and as do many parents. And um, I hope that people will read my commentary and that will be meaningful to them. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Dr. Siegler. Thank you. And now we move on to recommendations. Uh, Nina, what do you, what do you have? My recommendation is a little bit corny, but my kids and I love to watch uh, MasterChef Junior together. <laughs> it's um, I sometimes struggle to be like into the same stuff as my small children. So this is one thing that we can all get into because there's cooking and it's ridiculous. The kids are kind of like that sort of like spelling bee style, like, you know, mm-hmm. precocious weirdos. Very talented, amazingly talented. Um, it is somewhat, unfortunately, a Fox show that we watch on Hulu, but we like gather around and there's, you know, it's it's useful because 
kids get, you know, like voted off the island. So we talk about how we don't always win shit and, you know, all that. It's like maybe some life lessons in there. But the food is great and it, it like inspires us to cook together and it's just a cute thing to do together. It's a great show. Totally great show. I have this thing about my kids watch cooking shows and then they start critiquing my cooking in a way that makes me want to That is true. Yes. literally like set them on fire in the kitchen. <laughs> 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 that is one That's unfortunate really byproduct. Is they're like the sear on this is really weak. Mom. <laughs> we true. had sort of thought that, that watching Master Chef would make our kids more interested in cooking, which it didn't really do, but it did have a, a sort of happy side effect of making them more interested in trying weird things in restaurants. Like they mm. oh, are more interested good. in like Especially the plating overseas. and and all that. Nice, awesome, uh, Dan. What's your recommendation? Uh, I'm recommending a tabletop game called Codenames. Um, while we were in New Zealand on this trip, we were introduced to this. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain exactly how the game works, but briefly, in short, it's sort of a password-style game where you are trying to get your teammates to guess several answers based on a one-word clue that you deliver. There's also this whole like thematic overlay of spies and assassins, but that doesn't really matter. The point is... The kids really like the game, um, but we were introduced to the game by a child-free couple and can thus recommend it as a game that is actually fun for adults to play too, even if you are playing with children. Um, I would recommend it for families with kids nine or older. Nine or ten-year-olds might need a little adult help as they play through, uh, but it is super fun. It's called Codenames. Codenames. Excellent. Never heard of it. That sounds great. Um, okay, my recommendation for uh, today is going to be a book that a lot of us have heard of, but uh, my son, I just remembered recently that my son read it when he was like 11 or 12 and really responded well to it, and he's not a reader. And this would be The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. This is Sherman Alexie's novel slash uh, memoir slash etc. Um, my son, who is not a reader, this may be good for boys, I don't know, but my son, who is not a reader, typically... Um, he finds reading tedious and boring. He'd much rather watch YouTube videos. He was really into this book, and I think there's a certain irreverence and uh, to Sherman Alexie's way of dealing with issues of gender and race and his own deal growing up. Um, that uh, and, and he's funny, and he's beautifully he can be beautifully poetic when he needs to be. Um, the book is obviously widely respected and a bestseller and all that. But uh, my son was really into it. So it might be good for your kid that doesn't like to read. This might be a good thing to sneak in there. This is the absolutely true diary of a part time Indian. And I would recommend it for kids, say, 11 or 12 and up. That book's so good. Right. So good. Yeah. It's also actually really great for adults to read. It's like the the rare middle grade novel that is totally satisfying and fulfilling for adults as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I remember we also read, which I cannot remember. It was, a, we read an Elmore, what's the guy's, the Get Shorty guy, Elmore. Leonard. Elmore Leonard. Leonard. Yeah. He, he wrote a kid's book that is like really weird and interesting. Whoa. Like a, yeah, I know. It sounds <laughs> scary, right? <laughs> it's a, he writes it from the point of view of a drug dealer's <laughs> kid. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, at some point I'm going to find that and recommend it, but I have to reread it to make sure it's not just garbage. Uh, Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. The homepage for the show is slate.com slash mom and dad. If you have a question you'd like to ask us on air, please leave us a message at 424-255-7833. You can also join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. For Dan Coyce and Nina Aaron, I am Carvel Wallace, and we'll see you next week. 